Okay, so we are returning from break after the first lecture of the first morning session given by a professor. And I think the professor had a few more remarks to make um, to continue his, his lecture. So over to Professor. Thank you, Keith. I wanted to say this before the first lecture, but we had this champagne celebration. So I say it now that I extend a very warm welcome to every one of you. I see many familiar faces and also many new faces and they are both uh, very welcome. I am very happy that you keep coming back and I am very happy you bring new uh, interested people and I am especially uh, pleased to see more young faces. The problem we face is that we are getting old. I know it myself, but also some other people as well. And what we need is more and more young people who are going to take the torch uh, over from us and run with it. So I am looking at this as a training ground. I am very pleased, as I say, that uh, we have been so far very successful and of course we carry on with this. So that's one thing. The other remark I would like to make is that I'm going to deviate slightly from the announced program. The morning sessions I want to loosen up and I keep the morning sessions to myself and the afternoon sessions I delegate to my very able lieutenants, Keith Weiner and Sandeep Jetley, and uh, there will be perhaps one other, we'll see, and uh, I myself may also lecture in the afternoon, but basically I keep the morning sessions to myself, and tomorrow I'm going to start discussion and probably this will take several morning lectures. Uh, discuss a new paper which I just uh, finished a few days ago and I'm asking uh, Ludwig to say where you find it and say about the missing G's. Will you please, <laughs> Ludwig? The paper can be found the back of the uh, organization on page uh, 20, 19, page 19. Um, unfortunately, while converting the document from um, Word to um, PDF, uh, the cheese went missing. So you have to supply those missing G's, please. If you don't understand the word, just think of G, and that will uh, fall into place. Especially if you use the word. 
So this is starting tomorrow morning. Okay, this afternoon it's going to be Keith. And now, Keith, will you please call for questions? Okay, well, does anybody have any questions? And on that note, if nobody has any questions, that means either nobody understood. Yes, Alex. Um, yes. Um, I, could you define, uh, it's just a clarification, um, income, wealth, and uh, the relation, and, how, and why you call it hoarding and disorder? I just don't think I understood what happened. Uh, income and wealth. Well, you are right. We should define these formally. But a formal definition, uh, which would be uh, acceptable at the highest scientific level, would be a little bit too long. And I thought we are saving a little bit of time here, cutting corners, I admit. I admit, you've got to define a precise definition what you mean by wealth, what you mean by income, and the difference between the two. Well, perhaps I just comment on the difference between the two, which will put the question into relief. The uh, idea is that you cannot directly consume wealth Wealth is somebody, some, wealth is something that somebody wants for different reasons. An art collector for one reason, a coin collector for another, and uh, a young man who uh, is uh, conscious of getting old or has young children who will need education and so on. He needs wealth because he wants to finance his old age and he wants to finance the education of his children. Wealth is not directly uh, suitable for that purpose. He will have to make an exchange and convert or exchange his wealth into income to uh, reach his goal. And the uh, converse is also true. Income is something that uh, you want to convert into wealth because income is like a flow. And if you don't husband it, that's, an <coughs> that's a word in the English language that is hardly used anymore in that context. Right, husband means something else. But originally, to husband means to uh, prevent uh, your income to be frittered away, disappear. You just try to gather it and save it. So th there is a very definite difference. And you could make it more precise but as I say, it would take more time and effort, and I, I don't think the benefits are really proportionate, so we make a little bit of compromise here. And then your other question was uh, hoarding and dishoarding? Okay, now, uh, wealth and income. 
there is a conversion. You need both for different purposes. And therefore, the question of conversion arises. Now, direct conversion means precisely hoarding, and that's converting income into wealth, and this hoarding, which means converting wealth into income. And think of hoarding gold or hoarding silver. But the word hoarding makes sense only if you uh, put it side by side with this hoarding. Because you don't hoard for its own sake. Like misers in, in Dickens' novel, Mr. Scrooge, right? His hoarding for hoarding's sake. Well, that's a pathological case, and I'm not denying that there are such. But I'm also claiming this is not typical. The typical case is you are hoarding because you've got a purpose which reaches beyond the fact of hoarding. And that's very, it's vital, like preparing for old age or preparing uh, to give an education to your children, and there might be others. So, uh, Think, whenever you say hoarding, you immediately think of this hoarding, because the two go together. But, and I had very little time, I, I agree, uh, this has to be tidied up, and uh, we'll find time during this course to do this, not today, but there is a great improvement here, which is graduating from conversion to exchange. I already pointed this out, that the problem with converting and hoarding is that it's time consuming. Too much time is wasted and your best years may fly by and you could not get closer to your aim. Which is, for example, going into business. You are a member of the labor force, but you are more ambitious. You want to leave the labor force and become an employer. And in order to do that, you've got to accumulate capital. And if you only have conversion available, if you don't have exchange as a shortcut, then this is going to involve a waste. Your best years may be wasted. And therefore, you want to go to the exchange. And again, this didn't happen overnight. It took probably centuries or even millennia before people discovering that we can do the exchange because there are people who have a surplus of income and a deficit of wealth, and on the other hand, there are people who have a surplus, surplus of wealth and deficit of income. The, one, the first is typically a young man, the second is typically an elderly man, and if the two get together, they can form a partnership, and then they can do this conversion on the spot rather than taking several years. 
And this is a great thing. Again, we don't know when it happened, how it happened, how long it took, but it must have happened. And uh, the benefits are only too obvious. Okay, more questions. I was going to say, there's one other thing I could add to, to the problem of hoarding. If, you, if your only choice is to hoard and dishoard, then when you're retired, you don't know how much you can consume. You either have to under-consume and then leave riches to your children, or take the risk of over-consuming and running out of wealth before you run out of life. And so that would be a very uncomfortable position to be in. I think Rudy has a question. Yeah, well, I'd like to comment on, on your, your question. Think of wealth as a piece of property, and income is your salary. Now, if you want to buy a house, you may have to save for 10, 20 years, hoarding, and then buy the house. And when you want to use the value of the house to live, you sell it. Well, if you can exchange it, your stream of income can be exchanged and you pay this, this, this interest for many years. And conversely, you can rent the house out or do a reverse mortgage. So I think that makes it clear what the difference between wealth and one chunk is rather than a pile of gold coins or a pile of silver coins. I think this gentleman here had a question. Uh, I, I wait for a few minutes. So, Mr. Shekhet, we'll be here again. So, maybe, maybe Okay. I just heard that supply and demand are a very vague concept. That was the first thing I just heard that supply and demand are a very vague concept. Okay. This is. Last time I understand that supply and demand could be a vague concept and they don't determine the price. But in the long term, a commodity demanded is a commodity supplied. There's a price attached to it. Unless it is demanded. How can it be supplied? I think um, this, this is a, uh, an area that I'm putting some thought into myself. And I think, first of all, there's an asymmetry between demand and supply, uh, as it were. And I think, well, the problem in mainstream economics is these terms are very vague, and I would say floating abstractions. They don't refer to anything concrete or, or meaningful. So if you look at demand, there's a bunch of consumers that in theory demand that good, uh, but if circumstances change may, may not demand it. But if you look at, at producers, production is contingent obviously on price, uh, but then you also have the futures markets that can shuffle demand as well as supply you know, forward and backwards. So I think it's a very nonlinear, very discontiguous, very dynamic uh, thing. And so to draw that, you know, to draw that graph that we've all seen, you know, we have the intersection between the two. You know, to, to, to draw that as a smooth, continuous, contiguous, linear line is at best um, misleading. But I'll, I'll let the professor speak. Uh, the question was um, the terms supply and demand are vague, can you, can you talk to them a little bit more, define them? The uh, demand? The supply and demand. That the, term, the terms are vague. 
Yeah, they, they are vague, precisely for what we explained, that the speculator cannot say that he is part of the supply or part of the demand. And, and this is huge. The contribution of speculations to the wheat market is overwhelming. And this is all part of the so-called price discovery process. Without speculators, we would be completely in the dark. What is wheat, wheat worth? What is it worth? Or what is corn worth? What is chicken worth? In order to find out, you need more than suppliers and consumers. You need a, a fairly large population of speculators in the futures market who will give their input. And as a result of all this, a bid price and an ask price will evolve and then the market can work efficiently. That, I mean, that's, that's all I can say. What, what is more it, is there to be said? Uh, but Professor, is it, is it in the short term or even in long term the prices can remain away from the equilibrium because of the futures market? Can it? He's saying, can the price move away from the equilibrium? My first response is, there is no equilibrium. <laughs> this is, this is a, a construct that exists only in the ivory tower. This does not exist in reality at all. This is describing a fantasy. So, I don't know how else to answer the question. I agree. We are not moving away from equilibrium. We just start from scratch. And then maybe we look back and say, now there were other people who tried to solve the same problem and got on the wrong track and it led into a dead-end street <coughs> because there is no such thing as supply-demand equilibrium. This is what an equilibrium would look like. Where you'd start out with some jitter and some motion, eventually you'd have a flat line. Um, I don't think there are any actual markets that behave like this. No. I've never seen a chart that looks like that. One other additional. Sandeep had a comment or a question. Uh, demand, demand manifests itself in the bid, and supply manifests itself in the offer. But the people who <coughs> are demanding and the supply change roles, or can change roles. So to look at it in sort of a linear way like that is, is incorrect. That's not the way that the market actually operates. Of course there's supply and demand to a, mar a commodity market, but they are, they are consequences of what the people want to do rather than the cause of the price, if, if that makes it slightly clearer. So supply and demand are like very vague, inaccurate terms from someone who's naive when they're looking at a bid and offer spread, for example. Whereas the correct way of looking at the market is in terms of the spread. And then you make conclusions about the way that the commodity itself is actually moving around on the back of that, if you can, which you most likely can't. You know. So the way to think of it is always in terms of bid and offer, which is a sort of much more refined, infinitely superior way of looking at the market than in terms of <coughs> supply 
and demand, which manifest themselves in the bid and the offer, in as much as supply and demand would manifest itself in anything. I'm going to be addressing this to some extent in uh, my presentation on Monday afternoon, okay. where I'm going to be talking about the uh, disequilibrium theory uh, from my perspective. So um, I'd like to just move on to uh, this gentleman's question, who's been very patiently waiting. Yeah, well, thank you in the first place uh, for both, to both of you for coming here and giving this week of lectures. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. My name is Peter Berenger. Um, I'm coming from the pragmatic side of things. I'm, well, an academic by trading in economics, but that's been a very long time ago. <laughs> so um, I'm more a writer on all things gold and silver, um, and also an entrepreneur. But my, my question comes back to the lecture of uh, uh, this morning, um, the concept of interest and the uh, justification of interest. Uh, two questions, if I may. Uh, we all know that there is interest in this world, and it will never disappear unless the central banks order it to disappear. Um, therefore, um, it is a fact of life, and it needs some sort of academic justification. You have now, well, uh, <laughs> not dismissed, but at least talked down uh, the concept of time preference. You said it's not that important, uh, even though it's not completely wrong. Um, if this is the case, first question, uh, what would you put in place, um, well, as an alternative justification for there being interest in this world? And second question is, uh, well, in my understanding, both uh, theory and in practice, uh, the risk component of, uh, of uh, interest uh, as a justification, as the main reason why there is interest in this world, the risk component that a credit uh, will have to be written down is by far the most important justification of uh, interest being in the world. Uh, would you agree to that, um, even though you didn't mention it this morning? Um, and in this particular part, risk component, is there also uh, well, a deviation between the Mises people, Mises Institute people, and your Menger point of view? Thank you. Did you hear all that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you, you can add what you want to. I, I can okay. Oh <laughs> uh, no, I, I heard it. So uh, I just want to make sure I remember all the sort of subcomponents of the question. The first is if we're rejecting time preference, what replaces it? Mm -hmm. um, as you'll see, and I'm, I'm foreshadowing lectures that the professor will be giving later this week. Uh, and I'll be touching on it, I think, as well in at least one of my presentations. It's not that time preference goes away. It's that Mises' view that time preference is intrinsic or a priori. It's the, it's the a prioriness. The, uh, Mises has the term originary, which I think basically means intrinsicist or, or a priori, axiomatic. That is what goes away. Okay. So the formation of the rate of interest to, to foreshadow what the professor, I think, will be talking about very soon um, is, is a combination of time preference and marginal productivity. So time preference does not go away, absolutely. That is a key part of the human existence, that when you're young, you have urgency to, to get going. If you're an entrepreneur, you know, you're an entrepreneur at 18, you're an entrepreneur at 16, but nobody trusts you with their money at 16. So by the time you're 24 and people trust you with their money, you're, you're, you're ready to go. But if you're 65 or 70, you have a need to do something with this wealth, and so you'd like to make an exchange with the entrepreneur. 
Uh, and so it's the time preference uh, combined with the productivity that uh, is really the, the heart of the professor's unique and new theory of the formation of interest. That was one part of your question. The second question was the importance of the risk component of interest, uh, or, and if there's also a dispute between the two schools of the Austrian school. Do you want to address the risk component of interest? <coughs> Not at this stage. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what Mises also does. When he created the concept of originary interest, that's abstracting away from risks. Just take things as given by nature, forgetting about risks. You see? And then he talks about the market rate of interest, which will incorporate other factors, including <coughs> the risk factors. So what Mises does is first He's axiomatic, he's apodictic with the idea of originary interest, and then goes to the market only afterwards. Now, the difference between his approach and my approach is that I agree with him that to bring in risk right at the beginning would be a mistake, because it would confuse the issue. It is at a later stage to ask, well, in what way will the existence of risk modify the pure theory? So start with the pure theory. In this respect, there is no difference between the approach of Mises and the approach of myself to the question of interest. However, Mises is categorical in saying that originally, uh, sorry, originary, could, could you write this word down, originary? It's not a common word, but there is such an honest-to-goodness English word. Originary is an adjective. Originary interest. Is, has nothing to do with the market. It's a thing in itself, uh, completely abstracted from the market. It's given apodictically, it's axiomatic. We are all subject to it. We were born with this instinctive, intrinsic, intrinsic, intrinsic idea of putting a higher value on present goods, lower value on future goods. So this has nothing to do with the market. Now, I don't use the word originary interest, but I disagree with Mises for another reason, because I think that the market is there from the very start. So we abstract away from the idea of risks and risk-taking and all that, but still there is a market. And I have explained 
already, and we are going to say a lot more about this, that originally there is this idea of converting income into wealth so that at the later stage we can convert wealth back into income. Okay, there is already a market there because we have to use some substance, some commodities to do the conversion. And that is, we hinted on, is finding the most marketable good in the small, the most hoardable. So we go to the market and get this and then build up piecemeal our wealth, and that means hoarding, and when we reach the ripe old age, or our children become of age, and they need, need to be educated, university education, and so on, then we go to this hoarding, which is again going back to the market. So the market is there at all times. But we, there is a, a great improvement. We, emphasize that also because typically this is not what happens hoarding and dishoarding typically what happens is the exchange so a young man with a surplus of, of uh, income. income and a deficit of wealth meets with an elderly man with a surplus of wealth and deficit of income. And they realize that their needs um, are complementary. So the obvious thing is they should form a partnership. And that's again a market process. Or if it's not a partnership, you can do it on an ad hoc basis. From minute to minute, they just go to the market and ask for a close a, a, a quotation for what is the going price for wealth, what's the going price for income, and when you think it's within your range, then you make the move and do the exchange. So the market is there from start. There's no way to get away from the market and do this axiomatically. That is my main, uh, main uh, uh, difference with Mises, that I, at all time I consider this as a market process. And this is the s same what Menger did with the origin of money. And the amazing thing to my mind is that Mises was in complete agreement with Menger on the origin of money, on the theory of origin of money he would uh, change his approach completely and get away from the market and start with this rather dogmatic, rather uh, artificial theory, originary interest and how it then you can introduce risk and this and that and then the market you bring in later this is uh, where I differ with him. And you are free to criticize me because I 
must say I am I don't have too many followers who are on uh, questionably uh, subscribed to this theory. It's still at that stage. It's uh, too new. What I, I, I don't know. That's uh, uh, up to you to judge. I, I was going to say you're not free to criticize the professor. And Sandeep <laughs> and I are here to make sure. <laughs> Just kidding. Did we did we cover all the points of your question, Peter? You did. Thanks. Okay. Now, before we break up for lunch, uh, we have a little presentation here. Uh, uh, you might have heard about Ben Ben uh, sorry Ben Benanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board of the United States, also known as Helicopter Ben. <laughs> And for a very good reason, because uh, he's a great believer of printing money. But printing money in itself is not enough. It doesn't solve the problem. You've got to spread money across society. So in order to... Uh, in order to uh, spread money around, go back to the first page, the everyday Federal Reserve. No, the. Jesus, which girls? So uh, he borrowed the idea. I think it was Milton Friedman, but correct me if I'm wrong. Milton Friedman, uh, in uh, one of his early pieces, said that. The way to solve the problem, to spread the newly printed money across society, is to use a helicopter and an airdrop of actual banknotes, dollar banknotes. And people will scramble and pick them up and scurry all over the place like rats do, <laughs> just to pick up the mana from heaven. You want to go to the first page? <laughs> just turn on the projector. And uh, so that's why he's called Helicopter Band. Now, did Friedman say that you have to use the helicopter first, or did Ben invent that in 2002? No, Ben didn't invent the idea of a helicopter drop. That is somebody else, and my memory is it was Friedman, but I may be wrong. So, please correct me if you know uh, where it originated from. And we have a little cartoon of helicopter Ben, which I like and uh, I want Willy to put on the, the screen we are going to project. Yes, Rudy. I thought that Friedman invented the horse churning out the dollars on the treadmill. Yeah. The intelligent horse. Yeah. yeah. That was Friedman. Yeah. He's talking about the uh, actual printing of money. He says, you don't have to be very intelligent to do that. And I agree with that. To print money doesn't take any special intelligence or skill because he says a thrashing horse you know how they used to thrash uh, wheat and other grains 
in the early days that there was a horse who was going round and round and the wheat was that's before threshing the wheat was threshed because the horse was stomping on it and going round and round and round and he says that's all it takes you need a horse who would go round and round and thrashing that's all the intelligence you need not any more than that and you can regulate the rate at which the wheat will be thrashed So that's another one, but I, I don't know who originated that helicopter. My memory is that it was also Friedman, but I may be wrong. Now, we seem to be having some problems here. There's no electrical power here. Oh, so they have no to power. figure out why is the wire broken, is the circuit off. So maybe we should do this this afternoon. Well, we could. We could. That's right, because it's quarter past 12. So we'll fix the problem. And uh, this afternoon, you will find time to do that. We, uh, this is just a preview. We come back to this tomorrow in the morning. But I, I wanted you to have a little preview. I want you to have <laughs> the <laughs> helicopter banner. He, oh, yes. He gave a lecture series, just started actually this past week. Uh, in uh, is it in St. Louis, Missouri? Um, George Washington. George Washington University. Yeah, that's where he gave his uh, yeah. first lecture, and he's coming up with lecture two, three, and four. So we don't have the full lecture, but we have lecture one, and it is on the internet. We lift it from the internet, and we want to give you the highlights, and then I will have occasion to make comments on this and it's our job here in a way to give a, a pungent answer to ben Bernanke and his theories of he's very critical of the goal being critical is not the word he just dismisses gold standard out of hand he would refuse to entertain it but we'll see what his argument is so with that thank you everybody and we return we have a four hour break for our three hours less than four three three hours and 45 minutes we return at 4 p.m. 4 p.m. sharp sharp <laughs> thank you <laughs>